Hello and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. My name is Kale Guthrie Weissman, and today we're chatting with Christiane Lemieux, founder of The Inside. Um, I'm really excited to dig into how digital commerce is changing and what she's witnessed over the last decade of running more than one company uh, that focuses on e-commerce. Um, especially uh, excited to dig into what she's noticed given all the tumult that's happened over the last few months. Um, hi, how's it going, Christiane? It's going really well. How are you doing, Kale? I'm doing great. Uh, yeah, so I'm so happy to speak with you. The first question, and we ask a lot of people this, uh, specifically, obviously now, but just the last few months have changed so many things in terms of e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Yep. And just in terms of both the company that you founded and the fact that you've written a book about sort of how to be an entrepreneur, how to found, found a company, all that stuff. How how has your mindset changed? Uh, what 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 is what has just shifted? Okay. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that I, I, you know, I like to, as an entrepreneur, look at everything from 30,000 feet down, right? And so if you look at what's happened over, I would say, the last nine weeks, um, is that the entire world was forced to go from being, you know, who they were to, to digital humans. And so um, if you weren't a digital first human before this, you certainly became one during this COVID pandemic. And that means that, you know, if you were the, the last holdout who says, like, I don't buy uh, groceries online, well, you started to buy groceries online. Um, if you were the last holdout who said, in my particular category, I don't buy furniture online, well, when you had to set up a classroom for your kids, all of a sudden you bought furniture online. And so it's a really interesting thing. You know, I, I could say that from 30,000 feet, just looking at, <laughs> you know, as, as, I, as I also circle back with all of the founders in the book um, and get their perspective on this from across a whole bunch of, of different industries, um, universally, the, the uh, founders that are tech and digital savvy are the ones that are not only seeing this as a transition, but also a gigantic opportunity. So I, a lot of people I've talked to are saying this is a gigantic opportunity, and that makes a lot of sense. Just how do you approach it specifically since, you, you know, you have you have Dwell, which is was around for, for decades before a, yep. lot of, a lot of this yep. has happened. And then you have the inside. Uh, you've worked at Wayfair. You've seen people slowly, incrementally buy things online. And now everyone is by necessity. How much of that is sticky? How do you how do you sort of think about when people are able to go back, whether they will go back. And I mean, just patterns in general have changed. Okay. People might be ba- buying things online, but they're not buying what they were before. So how, how do you sort of cognize all that? Okay, well, so th- that is a really interesting question. And, you know, you said you wanted to get into the weeds. Well, here are the weeds. <laughs> um, I, I started I started Dwell Studio. I started out of my apartment in New York, um, it's sort of at the end of my college years. Um, and I literally had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know what a purchase order was. And I learned the business along the way. But what I realized in writing Frictionless, the reason I wrote Frictionless is because had I written a book about retail and commerce um, during my Dwell Studio decade, it would have been worth nothing but literally firewood kindling at this point, like a fire starter, because everything had changed. And so as an entrepreneur, I got to the fork in the road where I realized that for the first time, I was going to have to raise significant capital in order to push that business model forward. And I had like an existential crisis because I realized that, and this was in 2013, end of 12, beginning of of 13. And I realized that if I raise money into the business model that I had built for Dwell Studio, that I would be raising money into into, into the past. Um, Mm -hmm. And also like, 
you know, I'm Canadian, so you can't raise money and not deliver on it. You know, that's just the way we are <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a species. So I, I wasn't going to raise money and, and try and build the business of the past. If I was ever going to raise money, it was to build the business of the future. And so um, I, I hired an investment bank because I decided to sell the business. I thought to myself, okay, I, what I have to do is I have to take this beautiful brand that I've built and I have to sell it to somebody who's got the, the back end of the future. Like it's got to make sense. And so I hired an investment bank in, 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 in New York. I gave them a list of 15 people who I would talk to. I talked to all of the usual suspects. And then I walked into Boston, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and I saw what they were doing at Wayfair. Uh, and, I, I, and, you know, it, it became totally apparent to me that they were so far ahead of the game. And when I told people I was selling it to Wayfair, they were like, what's Wayfair? Because at that point, uh-huh. they, were the sleeping, they were the sleeping giant. But, you know, Neeraj understood e-commerce and he understood it so profoundly, and especially in our category, that to me, you know, I will say this, you know, uh, with full transparency, it wasn't the best deal, but it was mm-hmm. the best deal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I went on to, I went on, so I sold it to Wayfair in August of 13. Um, and here's a funny anecdote. Um, one of the other furniture majors said to me, Christian, we love the brand. It'll take us two years to get you on the site. I was like, two years. <laughs> Wayfair did it in six weeks. And the day the, the, the uh, deal was went, went public, we flipped the switch and we were on Wayfair Live. And so that is the difference between, you know, the future of commerce and the past of commerce. And I think that what we're seeing through this you know, the, the, the sort of effects of this pandemic is that's triply true. So the people mm-hmm. that are able to pivot um, in a digital way are the ones that are going to come out of this with market share. So I'm really fascinated with Wayfair specifically because I'm they're a really interesting company to cover and keep tabs on. And yeah. uh, I, I wanted to sort of get your get take your temperature I feel like specifically when you sold to Wayfair, there is a sort of digital playbook with a lot of companies that it was all about marketing, growing, and then figuring out sort of profitability and bottom line after that. And now things have sort of been turned on their head because a lot of companies might not be able to raise money right now. And it's yep. all about, are they able to be profitable? And Wayfair is a yep. really interesting example because, you know, every people are buying a lot of things online. I think at their last earnings, they had uh, their volume of sales have increased, but they're still having difficulty with the actual business model part of it. And so Mm -hmm. I'd love to just hear sort of, do you see those conversations shifting, especially for a company like Wayfair, which they provide Mm -hmm. cheap furniture that people can buy pretty much anywhere Mm -hmm. in the United States. How do -hmm. do you make a business model like that work, especially Mm -hmm. now when times are much tighter? Mm-hmm. It was a really interesting question. Okay, so this is all theoretical, of course. And this is, all, in my opinion, because I don't, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't sort of, see, I don't know what the the bottom line there is right now. Here's what I would say: mm-hmm. is that Amazon led the way, right? So you just grow, grow, raise, raise, and, and at some point you have so much market share that you're going to flip over to profitability. And they did that in an extraordinary way, like to the point where you know Jeff Bezos will be the first trillionaire. Um, <laughs> Interesting, you know, sort of land, sort of, I, I would say, things that have happened in, in this particular world. Um, I think we work through a, a, a real uh, curveball for all of us, which was, wait a second, you can't raise, raise, raise and never be profitable because at some point the buck stops there. Um, I would say that I think that Neeraj has probably learned from both case scenarios um, and he, he knows 
how to make that company highly profitable. Um, and you know what? Maybe he won't use the Amazon playbook anymore because it's not relevant. Um, maybe WeWork showed us a whole bunch of things that were really important with respect to profitability. Um, and I think that he's got a few, he's got a few things. Wayfair's got a few, you know, some very serious wind in their sails right now. First of all, when you think about home, um, over the last nine weeks, that particular category has taken on a completely new significance, right? So this year, you won't be traveling around the world. You won't be buying, you know, direct-to-consumer suitcases. You won't be, um, you won't be eating at restaurants, um, staying in hotels, and all of these other things. You probably won't have the same Uber or Lyft bill that you had, you know, nine weeks ago. What you will be doing is you will be focusing your time, and I think, uh, you know, disposable spend on making your home into everything it should be, not only for now, but for what the future of our lives is going to look like. And I think that anybody who thinks like, quote unquote, we're going back to normal, um, I, I think is probably not coming to serious grips <laughs> with what normal is going to look like. Um, because mm-hmm. I live in New York City and I can tell you that I took the subway for the first time yesterday in nine weeks and I was the only person on the subway. The only person. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, you know, I think that uh, the, 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 we, this is a, this is a, a, a complete global reset. And so, um, I, you know, I, I mean, this is just conjecture, of course. And, you know, I love, I love a big, you know, dramatic um, arc, but I think, that, you know, New York has been handed the, the, the opportunity of a lifetime because I also think for the first time, you know, Jeff Bezos isn't coming after him right now. Um, he's got, he's, he's dealing with other things, you know, he's doing essential goods and all kinds of other things. Um, and so, you know, Wafer has this pretty incredible runway in front of them. Um, and I think that they will capitalize on it because I think that there is an incredible team and, and just a really thoughtful, um, um, and very strategic group of people. So we've talked about this sort of wider lens from the perspective of what, what, might or might not Wayfair do? How does this change the inside? What have you What have you guys been doing that specifically catered to the last few months? Change? Have you changed the products you're you're showing? Have you what What different things have happened? Well, I mean, you know, some of the halo that that Wayfair is getting in terms of people um, thinking about their homes, um, we obviously get too. And so I, I, the other thing that I think that, you know, some of the things that we've learned from watching the market in general is that, you know, customer acquisition costs are down, um, paid marketing spend and those costs are down because, you know, we're not competing with the same group of people we were competing with before because some people just cut their marketing spend. Um, and so, you know, it's one of these things where you have to be being nimble and actually in our case, being new and fairly, um, small has been, has been really advantageous for us. So we we pulled the playbook, right? We got rid of our office lease and all of us are working virtually. We are um, really being strategic about market spend, but not pulling back because at this point there, there is the ability, you know, to, to take a, a page out of Wayfair's playbook to, to, to get to, to actually take market share because the competition is different than what it looked like before. The other, you know, incredible advantage we have is that our supply chain is domestic, right? So everything is is made in the United States. Um, We hold no inventory, which is something that I learned very fundamentally from my time at Wayfair. Um, You know, that's 
part of the reason that I started this this company is that I had on one hand all of this really amazing um, brand and design experience from the team I built the first time around, and then. I had all of this e-commerce um, and just structural business learning and also um, was, you know, a CEO who led with really, really strong um, business principles. Like every single decision we made was passed through the ROI lens, which wasn't something I necessarily did my first time around. So I got schooled in business <laughs> at Wayfair in ways that I think are, you know, ex- like I look back, I think it's extraordinary. So, you know, just, just applying both of those things. And I thought to myself, okay, if I can create the brand and, and kind of design designer product that I did with Dwell Studio, but I can apply it through the Wayfair filter, now that would be a company that I would start. And so that is, that is what the inside is. So I, I was reading about your, your model in terms of not holding inventory. Can you just give yeah. a, just sort of describe it for, for us? It's essentially that you, you make everything to order. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So it's, so it's, you know, we do it. We're not the only, they call it made on demand. We're not the only made on yeah. demand company in the United States, right? There's, there's starting to be, I mean, I think made on demand is, is the manufacturing of the future. And so, you know, I think about that all the time. I mean, it, it's so much better for the environment. You know, there's not warehouses full of imported product that are just sitting there. Um, you know, in a, in a scenario like this particular pandemic, I mean, think about the people whose entire supply chain is, is, you know, based overseas. I mean, they're running up against inventory problems now because they actually can't get their product. Um, and so having a domestic manufacturing base has allowed us to continue to produce even during um, this particular and very challenging situation. So um, that has that has been very, very advantageous to us. So we don't make anything until you place your order. Um, and, you know, there's there's people in my cohort who do the same thing with shampoo and, you know, uh, uh, vitamins. And it's it's in every it's in every category at this point. Absolutely. With furniture, though, how, how does that work in terms of scale? Um, and sort of how do you, you know, if you as you grow as a company, how are you sure. approaching that if you reach the, you know, the expanse of Amazon, you know, I'm sure you would love that to happen. I would love that to happen. <laughs> I mean, here, here, here's the amazing thing about American manufacturing is that the home furnishings business has always been largely made on demand. So everything, all of the factories that we pass our product through in, you know, in North Carolina, in, you know, all over the South have been doing this for generations. And a lot of them are family businesses, but they make furniture on demand, bench made. And so for us, you know, what I was able to do was I was able to spend a lot of time um, looking at the Wayfair supply base and their particular, you know, the, 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 the production scores that the manufacturers had. And I was able to, you know, I was able to, 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 you know, figure out a supply chain that is, that is really, um, built on how it gets done here. I mean, this is, this is, you know, this is a supply chain built on American manufacturing ingenuity that's been going on in, in some cases for, you know, through family generations. So it, it, it that's how it happens. It's just, they never got credit for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So did, Amazon did you... uses just, just, you know, just to your point, Amazon uses some of the same manufacturing facilities in North Carolina that I do. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Please stay with us. 
given that the United States shut down for a bit, it's now only beginning to reopen. Yeah. Did your supply chain get delayed? Sort of if you're making everything on demand, that seems like that might be the one time when you wished you had some inventory on, on hold. Well, you would think so. But Trump um, made manufacturing an essential um, an essential service. So um, there are only one or two of our factories actually were shut down. What we, so we have one factory that's on the, on the, uh, U.S. Mexican border and that was shut down for a little, for about two or three weeks. And then we have one in Illinois that was shut down for longer, but largely, um, because they're essential services, they were able to keep, um, manufacturing. Interesting. And so mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier that you were being more cognizant about marketing spend, but you didn't pull back. Can you just talk a little bit about yeah. sort of how you can even make this broader for how founders should, given that CAC is down so much. I've heard differing down. views. Like some people say spend, spend, spend right now. Other people say don't. I, I imagine for the furniture industry, it's specifically interesting, interesting because it's a higher ticket product. So uh, yes, the, some people the, might the, be the, wanting the, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, are, the, how, how do you go about that? Well, yeah, the AOV is higher. Listen, I mean, I think that there's like a there's like a playbook across um, largely venture funded companies where you know you spend thirty uh, percent of your margin on uh, on marketing, and and that's sort of the, the like structurally sound place to be. I mean, obviously, over time and with scale, you want to you know you want to. Um, get down to, to, you know, if you can single digits when you, but it, it takes a while to get there. So we think about it with like in that, in sort of that framework and then want to work our way down. Um, and as customer acquisitions costs go down, I mean, if you, if you stay the course, you, you could start to take market share. I mean, that's the really interesting thing about this particular opportunity. Mm-hmm. How can you share a little bit about the, how you're viewing market share, how, how much have you grown? Like what's, what, what are the dynamics that you're dealing with at the inside right now for, for, for how you're plotting the next year? I, I mean, it, it's, I would say that, you know, we're, we're, we're staying in the, in the sort of sweet spot of marketing spend. Um, we're seeing pretty great results because um, CAC is down, but I mean, it, right now, like today, it's sort of difficult to plan what the next year is going to look like because I think that none of us know, right? And people mm-hmm. are talking about people are talking about you know with a temper with a te- with the temperatures going up, a lull in in you know possible spread of COVID because um, it doesn't react well with higher temperatures, and then us seeing an, a sort of a, a, a another um, incline in. September, October. So I, I don't know. Like, that's the thing. This is, this is like a day to day pivot at this point. Um, and I think that, um, it's, it's going to be very difficult to, to, to sort of lock down any kind of real plan until there's some sort of vaccine. And I think that that's what, you know, the economy is showing us. And, you know, every single, you know, all I do is read the, is read the newspaper. <laughs> um, trying to read the newspaper online, but, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what the, what the sort of road forward is. So how, like with that, you know, you say you're taking it day by day, do you have any kind of approach on forecasting or looking forward, or is it just sort of, you're admitting that it's a complete unknown how the rest of the year is going to shake out? I I mean, you know, like all forecasting, you know, you can put a finger in the wind, right? (laughs) I mean, that's, I think that that's largely what, what forecasting is, uh, uh, in, in a, in a sort of, non-traditional um, period like this. I'm trying to think of like what the, the right way to sort of sum up where we are. Um, 
you know, I, I mean, I've, I've experienced uh, 9-11 and the financial crisis. So have seen parts of this movie before, but this one's totally different. Um, this one's totally yeah. different because it's global um, and because it is sustained in a in a way that, you know, those things weren't necessarily sustained. And also, you know, you couldn't you could sort of work around the 9-11s and the financial crisis because they, they it wasn't they, they couldn't come back. I mean, there is a real chance that, you know, cases can start to mount again if we're not very careful. Yeah. So I'm going to say, you know, day by day is probably the right way to 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 approach this right now. So can you just, I, I have a, I have this question written down and it's perfect segue. So, sure. you, you know, you've been through 9-11, you've been through the recession. Uh, we, I've been trying to talk with other founders specifically who lived through the last recession because they are not yeah. apples to apples at all. But I imagine nope. the conversations specifically with founders, with investors are similar in terms of the unsure, unsureness of yes. what's going to happen and a new sort of yeah. recessionary economics. What are, have you reverted back to moves that you did back then? Are your conversations similar to what you had back in 2009? So just walk me through that. Well, the interesting thing, my, my whole thing, the interesting thing is I didn't have investors in 2009. Um, and I mm. have investors this time. And the really, the, 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 you know, there are pros and cons to everything, obviously, but the really great thing about having investors this time around is the amount of, of knowledge that they um, provide their founders with. And so whether it's forums or, you know, legal help or understanding the SBA or the PPP, like all of these things, it is pretty extraordinary how helpful they can be and also how, how helpful other founders can be to founders. And so, I, I mean, I would say the, the difference you know, with, with, with the financial crisis and, and this particular situation that we're in now is that they obviously affected totally different sectors. Um, and the, you know, some of the challenges that we face in the, in the, in the financial crisis were access to, access to, to credit and capital in any way. And so what happened in the financial crisis is like the banks were like, okay, you know what? Loans done. Um, so it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit navigating through this, this particular crisis is a little bit different. Um, and the sustained nature of it, um, it, it makes it more challenging. You know, the government was able to bail out the banks. Um, th- here they're, they're, they're trying to figure out where to sort of really strategically ap- apply, apply the capital. I think, I think that, you know, backing small businesses was, was, I was actually, you know, pretty, pretty, um, strategically intelligent. And so we'll see what the long-term effects of that are. Mm-hmm. How are you just in terms of product development, product line, your consumer facing founder yeah. uh, and the economics are changing. We have huge unemployment rates. People are buying oh. differently. Uh, yep. I mean, are you changing your product line or what are, what are you looking at? Uh, how are you approaching that? Well, I, you know, I joke that I want to get into the baby and kids category as quickly as possible <laughs> because there is going to be a baby boom, obviously, in December, Jan- like January off of all of this. I mean, it's already, you know, it, it's already sort of trending that way. Um, so, you know, I mean, as responsibly and as quickly as, as, I, as I can enter categories, that's what I would like to do just because I think the whole home is going to be our focus um, for all of us. And so really thoughtfully thinking about how do I, you know, how do I keep surprising and delighting my consumer um, and giving, uh, you know, her and him what they need in this particular time? And, and, and what is that? So really, really thinking about that. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, so your book's coming out next month. It but is. I'm assuming you wrote it before all of this hit. Like, I did write it before this. So hit, let's talk. Yeah. Like, are, have things changed drastically? Are you going to now write another book about the last four months? No. So so the book that I wrote is actually now triply applicable, right? Um, and you know, my whole thesis is that whether it's D to C companies or you know leaders in industries. The, the, the sort of people that make um, our day-to-day transactions, whether that's, you know, renewing your driver's license, booking a plane flight, getting your groceries, the, the, the companies that do that in the most frictionless manner are the companies that are going to win. Um, because I think that as a human species um, and as digital humans, and now I, I firmly believe that everybody is a digital human, um, as digital humans, what we realized is the sort of transactional platforms that make it the easiest for us are the ones that we frequent the most, right? So Amazon is probably, you know, from a retail perspective, the best version of this, right? Uh, Jeff Bezos made it so easy for us, you know, either through the frictionless aspect of the Amazon site or the Prime membership or even the Amazon wallet. Like he's made it so easy for us to buy online. So yeah, so so from a retail perspective, I mean, you know, Jeff Bezos has, has shown us you know, he's sort of the, the, the godfather of all things frictionless. Um, and I would argue, you know, that Google is also excellent at that, as is, as is um, Facebook, you know, to a large extent. So these and, and I think what we've realized um, as a sort of as a, as a digital first human race is that the one thing, the sort of one and only non-renewable um, resource is our time. Um, and so these frictionless companies have shown us that if the user experience is excellent, if they cut all the corners for us that we need cut, if we trust them with our dollars, that we will continue to go back to the people who make our uh, day-to-day experiences the least friction-filled possible, they will get our share of wallet um, because they give us back time. Um, And and that, that is across every category. You know, whether it's the hotel booking or the airplane or the, you know, buying of the toilet paper, anybody who gives us back time um, is where we're going to spend the little time we want to doing all of these things that we do on a daily basis. And so I, I think about that, you know, constantly. Um, because, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, this is also another, you know, 30,000 foot caveated, um, in my <laughs> opinion, answer to this. But I think that, you know, wellness and self-care and all these things um, are a direct result of us having uh, this shift in time. Um, and so the time that, you know, I as a mom would have spent going to the Toys R Us before, you know, they went through bankruptcy and all these other restructuring problems. Um because they, they had too many retail stores um, <laughs> before I went to the uh, to the toy store, you know, to get the Lego, to come back, to wrap it, to do the thing. To like, you know, now I can go on Amazon and I can have that Lego deli- delivered to my son's birthday party before he ever has to go. Um, and you know what? The, re- the recipient of that gift doesn't care if it's coming in an Amazon box because he already knows he's getting a present for his birthday. And so that transactional time is for me, I don't know, three minutes versus the, I don't know, two hours it would have taken me to get on the subway, go to Union Square, buy the gift, come back, wrap it, make sure my son actually brought it to the birthday party, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
we're seeing that through these, this, this frictionless redistribution of our time, we get to take that found time and spend it in places that, that, is, that are interesting to us. And that, in my opinion, is self-care. Interesting. So I'm with you on the frictionless thesis. I, I wonder, it, it seems that a lot of the companies that are so successful now that are able to scale their frictionless programs are big and they're the ones that have the capital. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we talk about Amazon, we talk about all these other ones. Sort of what are your thoughts in terms of smaller or even yet to launch founders? Should should a founder be oh launching now? Should they be fundraising? I've the VC. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. I mean, I just, I think about all the people in my, in, in my, in my book. And so I'm thinking about, for example, um, Eric, who is the founder of Capsule here in New York City. Mm -hmm. And what Eric did was he, he realized that there was so much friction in the prescription process. You know, I, he, he had uh, the flu, went to stand in line at Dwayne Reed. When he finally got to the front, he realized they didn't have the Z-Pack that he needed in stock. And he was like, this is insane. And he started Capsule, which is, you know, you know, it's the whole, your whole um, prescription is online. It gets delivered to you seamlessly. I mean, all of these things. The same thing with like, you know, hymns. I mean, you get your, you get your um, hair replacement therapy delivered to you. You don't have to, you know, go and fumble around at the drugstore and be embarrassed that you're buying X, Y, and Z. I, I mean, uh, that, that I think it's, and these are all startup companies. I mean, and most of the people that I talked to in the book were startup companies. And what they're, they're doing is they're taking the friction out of day-to-day -day life. I mean, a Amazon mm -hmm. is just the easiest, you know, example to use because we all get it. You know, we all, we are all Amazon customers. I mean, it's very difficult to find somebody who isn't. Um, and I think, you know, Bezos showed us the way. Um, and so all of these other, and, and whether it's, you know, whether it's niche um, market segments, like, you know, for example, I, I, I uh, interviewed the founder of Prose, which is a, which is a, you know, personalized hair care, mm -hmm. personalized shampoo company, which I think is extraordinary because he's right. Why, Arno? Why would you, you know, Arno came from from you know L'Oreal. Why would you go into the store and buy a shampoo that is generic for everybody when you could come online and for the same price or maybe a few dollars more, you can get shampoo that's made specifically for your hair? Like mm -hmm. why? You know, with the actual scent that you want. Um, and so that's removing the friction from you know not only hair care, but also personal choice. Like mm -hmm. I, I don't have to read all the shampoo bottles. I'm actually getting the one that works for me. But all of those companies. Yeah. They're, they're all frictionless. They're all really interesting companies. They were all launched pre COVID. So what do you do now that sort of it, things are a little bit scarcer and it might be harder to have a conversation. Is it just, you have to be a shrewder founder. Do you have to have a, 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 a better product market? Like I feel, it feels mm. like it's a different, if you're a founder now, it's a little bit different to launch your product because the the climate is just so different. Am I wrong? Well, I, uh, no, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think it I think it largely depends, unfortunately, on what category you're in right now, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're trying to, you know, launch a like I'm thinking about some of the founders in the book. If you have a a co working space, um, you know, and that's your business model, um, y you know, uh, those 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 founders are in my book, and they have beautiful business models. They just, they're, they're just not, a, they're just really difficult right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a, a, an article right now and I am actually talking to one of the founders, um, 
in the uh, sort of digital first hospitality space uh, later tomorrow. And, and you know what? He, he His name is Will and the company is Mint House. And he pivoted because he went from booking his rooms um, for travelers into booking his rooms for healthcare workers. And so in New York City, you know, there's a whole wave of healthcare workers that came in here to uh, to help the, the hospitals from all over the country. And he was able to tap into that network and pivot very quickly. Um, and he pivoted not only like, not only from a business model perspective, but he also pivoted to me karmically. So, you know, he's, he's using his touchless digital technology, you know, so you can get into the, you can get into the rooms with a QR code, et cetera, et cetera. He's using that technology, not only because it actually works in COVID, but he's also using it to, to bring people in that, you know, the, the city needs. So I think it's interesting. That's all it's, you know, it's, I think that this is a really interesting opportunity for founders who can thoughtfully navigate through the challenges. Absolutely. All right. I think that's all the time we have. Christian, this has been really great chatting with you. Um, Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you, Kale. It was uh, my pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also produced our theme music. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week. 